All right, good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. I, I know I'm grateful for mine. And, and we know uh, in a day like today, there are many reasons to rejoice. Uh, we are single-handedly uh, keeping uh, Hallmark and Trinity Greenhouse in business today. So praise the Lord for that. Uh, we, we also know that many of us have been um, raised in homes where we saw uh, mothers with, with an amazing example. We celebrate this time of year, uh, so many in our church. I mean, uh, babies coming left and right. Uh, it's been an exciting thing to see new moms coming onto the scene. We also know for some of us, this is a hard season. It could be a hard day, bringing up hard memories for many different reasons. And so we just want to pause on that and say we, we're here as a body um, through the vast valleys and the mountain peaks to weep with those who weep, who rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, but to all the moms here today, we want to say we love you. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, we're glad that you're, you're here and hopefully you don't have to cook today. Um, we are, we're walking through the, uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel. We're, we're doing this series called The King of Kings. And, and we're looking at the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And we're calling it King of Kings because we're seeing the true king, our, our God, and his sovereign work through Israel's human kings. Now, I love stories, and this is a great one. But as we said last week, we have to be careful as we read these stories. Um, we, we cautioned last week that we don't want to just boil it down to good guy, bad guy. That it's not just as simple as David was good and Saul was bad. So you be like David and you don't be like Saul. And in a good story... The characters are complicated. And what we said is ultimately we know from the Bible that, that all of us are bad, that all of us have fallen short. There's only one true good guy, one true protagonist, and that is our God. As we look at this, these stories, we can learn from each of these characters, see the good things in them and the bad things in them. But this week we want to look at another principle, and, and that is this. Narrative, or such as a fancy word for story, narrative is first descriptive, and then prescriptive. It's first descriptive, not prescriptive. And, and here's what we mean by that. A story is it's primarily geared toward describing what has happened, either in a fiction or nonfiction story, not primarily to prescribe or instruct or tell us how to live. So let me unpack this. We do this every day in, in our lives. Like if I tell you about my day, what am I doing? I'm describing how, how my day was, right? I'm not telling you how to live. I'm not prescribing an instruction toward you. I'm telling you what happened to me. So if I tell you a story of how I got stuck in construction on the way to Anchorage, got impatient, and ran over one of the flaggers, right? That's a, this, is a, this is a fiction story, right? Just so, you, just so you know. I'm describing what happened to me. I am not... Telling you, in fact, I don't recommend running over flaggers, right? That I'm not telling you how to live. I'm telling you what happened in my life. It's not about you, okay? Now, we need to make sure that we do this when we read the Bible as well. In the Bible, we see different kinds of genres or types of literature. Some of them are prescriptive and some of them are descriptive. And what we mean, there are some that are prescriptive. When you read the prophets, the prophets are telling, instructing Israel through, as God's mouthpieces, how he wants them to live, to repent from their sins, to be faithful to him. Um, when we read the Proverbs, these are instructions for how to live wisely. Very prescriptive. When we read the letters of Paul, he's writing to specific churches and giving them very specific instruction. On right belief and right behavior. But when we look at narrative, narrative is not. It is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. And this is why it matters. If we read a story like Abraham um, uh, being told by God to sacrifice Isaac, this is not prescriptive in that we just kind of copy their behavior, right? God's not telling us 
That if, if we're going to trust him, that we have to sacrifice our firstborns as well. Which is the oldest of the Frankino family, praise the Lord. But that's not what's happening here, right? So what, 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 this is what we see. So, so what, what, we, what we say here, though, is notice that I said narrative is first descriptive, then prescriptive. Not that it's not prescriptive as well. What do we know from Timothy? All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, reproving, rebuking, correcting. And so what we're saying here is what it does mean is as we read it, we first see what is being described in the events that took place and then take these general principles from the story we've learned and apply them to our life. What can we learn? So when I told you my story about running over the flagger, I'm not telling you what to do, but what, what, what you can learn from my character, right? To not be impatient, um, to, to slow your roll a little bit, and uh, the anger can lead to serious consequences, like the murder of a road construction employee. Right? That's, that's what you can learn from, from my story, from Abraham. He's, he's not telling us exactly what to do in our lives, verbatim, from what Abraham did. What, is he, what, is he, what, are, the, what what's, what are the principles being brought out here to trust God, even when it doesn't make sense? To be, to be willing to offer him whatever he asks of us in this step of faith, trusting him to provide. And this is really vital because wrong, wrong study, wrong reading of it can lead to wrong interpretation. It has massive consequences. So like last week when we said that Saul was looking for his dad's donkeys, we don't take that story and say, well, okay, I got to go out and look for some donkeys today. And then if I find them, I'll become king of Israel, right? But basically, here's what we're saying. Don't make weird application, right? Don't, don't just copy their exact behavior as you read through the story and I encourage you to do so. At the end of our notes each week, we're going to have what stories we're going to be reading next week in this series. We'll also have that online under our sermons tab so you can follow along. We want everybody in our church to be in the word for themselves. But as you read these stories, first look at what is being described. Then we draw out some general principles from the characters in the story, not just copying their exact behavior. I say, get it. You say, got it. Get it. All right, here we go. Um, today, we're going to get into the story, see what it's describing. Um, last time on King of Kings, what we see, 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel asks for a king. They're coming out of this period of the judges, and they ask, they say, we want a king like the other nations, showing ultimately that they did not trust God to provide and protect for them. So then last week, what do we see? God gives them a king, and his name is Saul, a man who outwardly, is tall, dark, handsome, and rich, much like your own preacher. And what we see, but what we see inwardly is when it comes to stepping up to be who God has called him to be, he's a total coward. In fact, where do we leave Paul? Ironically, the tallest guy in Israel is cowering, hiding in the baggage. And Jen Wilkin, in her study, she, she joked, she said, last week we saw um, Saul hiding in the baggage, but this, in this week, chapter 13, we're going to see the baggage hiding in Saul. See, yeah, that's a burn. That's a burn. It's a dad joke on Mother's Day. There you go. Um, So chapter 11, this is actually surprising. We'll look at 11 and 12 real briefly, but then we're going to dive into 13. Chapter 11 in 1 Samuel, Saul actually does good. Like, this starts on a bright bright note here uh, where the Ammonites are bullying Israel, and they turned their new leader, Saul. We got a king like we wanted. Now, how's he going to help us? Look at verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Just like last week when he first became king, and the same thing happened. The Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he started prophesying speaking God's word to the people. We see the same thing here. God empowering Saul as they go into battle. And he musters up 33,000 men. And I love, I love these words. He says, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. 
That is a king, right? I want to use that in my life more often. By the time the sun is hot, this sermon will be over, right? <laughs> the time the sun is hot, we'll have our Mother's Day brunch. Not quite as, like, powerful, but um, <clears throat> you're tracking. So here's, here's what happens. Verse, verse 7, then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. This is amazing. They're unified as a people. They fear the Lord, and what happens? They find victory. They whoop the Ammonites. And you want to hang on to this moment because it's a rare bright spot in a very, very cloudy book. Now, they say in verse 12, after the victory, the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. They say, where are the haters? Let's kill them. Who said that Saul shouldn't be king? Let's put them in their place. And Saul goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Not a man shall be put to death this day for today. The the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Says, don't kill them. Now, this is if you start this out here, this looks like a pretty good, pretty good start for Saul, right? I mean, I mean, here we see this guy, tall, dark, handsome, and rich. He's a winner, right? Strong and victorious out of the gates in battle here. And now he's showing justice and kindness. Don't kill these people. Even those who have hated him. He's turning the other cheek. We got a good king here, right? <laughs> Let's just keep reading. Let's just keep reading. First Samuel 12, Saul's re- Samuel's retirement speech. Remember, Samuel's the last judge of Israel. We're transitioning to this new thing with the kings. But what Samuel says in his speech, because we are still, I don't care if there's judges or kings or who you're ruled by, we are still under a covenant with God as his chosen people. And we're still under his law to live as he says. And Samuel says, you've done a bad thing asking for a king. But if you will obey God, if you and your king will obey God, things will go well. If you do not obey your God, if you do not fear him. This is totally foreshadowing for what's about to happen in chapter 13. Chapter 11, Saul does good. Chapter 13, not so much. There's a fearful situation. We're going to see Saul's foolish response, and then finally a fateful, a fateful consequence. So in, in um, chapter 13, you see Saul and his son Jonathan, takes, they take out the Philistines with 3,000 men. You chalk up another victory for this new stud king. Things are going great. But then in verse 5, the Philistines retaliate. It says they mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. So they say, we see your 3,000 men and we'll raise you to 30,000. They bring, and some of this is, might be hyperbolic language. We're not totally sure. But what we do know is they got a lot of men. And, and then we look and see how do the people of Israel respond. Look at this. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan in the land of Gad and Gilead. Still Saul, Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. They freak out. And you get this picture of them diving into tombs and caves and running into each other. You remember the scene in Monty Python? Run away! Run away! These people are losing it. And they come running back to their shiny new toy, King Saul. And they say, we need you to fight another battle for us. And how's it going to do this time? It's a scene of fear and terror. What's Saul's response to a fearful situation? We see a foolish response. Verse 8. He waited for seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. Come back to that. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. 
So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, apparently, according to this text, and we only see it inferred here, Saul had been told by Samuel to wait for seven days. Samuel would come, he'd offer a sacrifice. Now, these burnt offerings were a way for the people to confess their sins to God primarily and then to seek his will. What are you gonna, how are you going to lead us into battle here? God is reminding Saul and his people, I'm still the king. I am still the king of kings. I ultimately fight the battles. But Saul gets fidgety here. He says, it's been a week. It's been seven days. Time's up. There's no Samuel. Give me the cow and a zippo. I'll do it. But then look at what happened. There's probably two, two sins here that, that Samuel is, could be potentially committing. Um, the first one is in, in Leviticus 6, it's very clear that the priests are the ones who are to offer these burnt offerings. And, and so basically we're saying that's, that's Samuel's job, Mr. Impatient Pants. It's not for you to offer these sacrifices. Now, it, it could be that he's overstepping his bounds. He is a king, not the priest. The priests were to be from the tribe of Levi. He's from Benjamin. That's not his job. He's, he could be overstepping his bounds here. But could also, the language leads room that Saul could just be overseeing the priests offering the sacrifice, that he may not be doing it himself. So in other words, we can't know for sure that that's one of the, the sins that he's committing here. But here's what we do know. It's very clear in the text. In verse um, 8, look at what it said. The time appointed by Samuel. But what we see here is that Saul got impatient and disobeyed the word of God spoken through Samuel to wait for him to come. Now, before we hypocritically blast Saul here, we just want to sit on this and put ourselves in Saul's sandals and say that would be a scary situation. Imagine you got 33,000 trained soldiers coming, breathing down your neck, and all of your people are running for the hills. Like, I get scared if I'm not sure if my milk has expired, right? Like, I get scared very easily. And so you think about the, the situation that he is facing here. Samuel's late. It's been seven days, which in this kind of a situation would feel like 7,000 years. There are some legitimate reasons to be afraid here, right? And there are times in our life where we're facing really hard, really scary things. And much like Abraham and Isaac, I believe what's going on here is that God is testing Saul's faith. He says, when all is lost, when it looks like your son on the altar, the knife is coming down, and when it looks like your people are about to die at the hands of the Philistines, will you trust me? I said, wait for Samuel. I said, the victory will come from me. And will you, the human king, trust me? the divine king. And so just, and this works out, I mean, these, these kind of stories, it's the timeline is always, it's funny how this thing works out. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. I mean, the stake is, is still hot. And here comes Samuel. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Hey, Samuel, what's up, man? And what does he say? What have you done? What have you done? Samuel goes, dude, I... Why do I see a bloody bull and a fire? What part of wait for Sammy the prophet do you not understand? What are you doing? You knew exactly what you were supposed to do. To which Saul replies, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you, oh, did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now, the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself... And offered the burnt offering. 
the blame shifting is just dripping from his words. You didn't come. You didn't come to save me. The people were breathing down my neck. I was seeking God's will. I had to do it. My back was against the wall, Samuel. What, what would you do in that situation? And what do you hear here in this language? It takes us back to the, the original sin, right? In the garden. When God says, what have you done? What does he say? The woman you gave me. Happy Mother's Day. Right? The snake made me do it. There's just, just all, this, all this blame shifting of responsibility. Sin tends to breed more sin. What do we see in Saul's heart here as he blame shifts? We see, we see a fear of circumstance. Saul is walking by sight, and it's a scary sight. But he's walking by sight, not by faith in what God had told him. We see an impatience here, unwilling to wait for God's timing. We see a, a self-reliance here. When things aren't going the way that I, that I think God should be doing things, I'll figure it out myself. I'll make a way, and we see control. He says, I'll do it in my timing and in my way. When God doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the bargain. And so Saul gets this giant red F on his faith as king. Faith test as the king. This also reminds us that we don't get to manipulate God through kind of superstitious acts. That our outward actions, I mean, here Saul is kind of treating God like a vending machine. If I, if I make these offerings, then God will have to give us the, the victory here, Right? It's a heart issue. God is more concerned about our heart than our outward actions. So if I go, man, I really want that raise that I'm, I'm going in for this week, or I really want my loved one to get better, so guys, we better go to church. <laughs> like, we better get God on our side. We better help that old lady across the street. We better do some good things so that God will give us what we want. That's not how God works. He's more interested in our heart attitude than our outward actions. So let's look at Saul, Samuel's response to, to Saul, his excuses. You have done Foolishly, he says. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. He says, you played the part of the fool here, Saul. Now, the word in Hebrew for fool, doesn't just, it's not just an intellectual foolishness. It's not like Saul couldn't count to seven. He didn't know how many, how many days was it? Carry the one. Like, I need my suit. Take my, my socks off here and count. Like, that's not, that's not what's happening here. It's not just an intellectual foolishness. It's a moral foolishness. When he acts in this way, he is, he is showing himself to, to be, it's, it's a heart issue. It's a, it's a matter of the will. It's a choice that he's made that is foolish. <clears throat> and Samuel says, do you remember my retirement speech? Dude, we just went over this. We said, if you will obey God and fear him, things will go well. And what's the first thing you did? You did not obey, and you did not fear him. Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to walk wisely, it starts with a proper view and submission and obedience and reverence to who our God is. So to not obey him, to not fear him, is utter foolishness. And what did it cost him? This man, you could have had an eternal legacy on this throne. Your kid, your kid's kids, your kid's kid's kids could have been on this throne, but now... Game over. Sin always costs. It results in death and destruction. So the foolish response 
a fearful situation leads to a fateful consequence. A fateful consequence. Verse 14. Now, that you, now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. As you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. He says your reign is over. Someone else is coming on. And then it says Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. He says I'm out. What's going on here? Because of his disobedience, Saul's kingdom will be taken away. It'll be given to another. And who does he say he'll give it to? A man after his own heart. Now, we know the story. If you've read this, we know this is going to be that little shepherd boy, right? This is going to be King David who's going to come, a man after his own heart. This is a word play that's going on here. We need to unpack this. See, their first king, Saul, was, was God giving the people what they wanted. Here, here's your choice. You said give us a king? You want, you want to trust outward appearance. Here is the kind of guy that you want. And it's even in his, his name. This is really cool. You check this out. The word Saul means Shaul, which is uh, the Hebrew word for, I mean, it's, it's the Hebrew word Shaul, which means desired. The word comes, the, the, the root word there is Sha'al, which means to ask or to desire. So do you see what he's saying here? And this comes out, he, un, he unpacks this in his retirement speech back in chapter 12. He says, now behold the king, whose name will be Shaul, whom you have chosen, for, you, for whom you have asked. He is the Shaul of your Sha'al. He is the ask of your asking, the choice of your choosing, the desire of your desiring. Do you see what he's saying here? In other words, Saul is a man after their own heart, their choice. And God says, my next man will be from my heart. He'll be my choice. Now, we have to, to understand this. The Hebrew word of, for heart is very different than, than how we might use it today. When we talk about heart, like in our culture, we're talking about emotion, right? Like, I'm engaged and my heart is just full of love. It's just floating on the air, the fountains of joy. You know, it's kind of this emotion-based thing. But, and now, the, the heart, though, is, is a deeper thing for the Hebrew. It was the seat of, desi- of emotion, but it was deeper than that. It was the seat of one's will and desire. So the seat of one's will and desire. In other words, the heart is where you make your choices. It's the deepest part of who you are in the inner man. It's how you do what you do and why. So, so here's, here's what he's saying here. The, the Hebrew mindset, is, it doesn't just mean that God had like stronger feelings for David. Oh, I just love that little shepherd boy. Just eat him up with a spoon, right? Little shepherd playing on his harp, and I just love him. And, and it's also not saying that finally it's a guy who's more, that his heart is more just like my heart in, in that David was morally superior to, to Saul. Because we know that's not the case, right? He is not just propping David up as the good guy and Saul as the bad guy. This is our good God's choosing. Both of them are messed up. Just read the story. Both of them are sinners that fall short of God's glory. I'm not saying that David's a better person than Saul. What he's saying is, David's my choice. David's my choice. And what we do see in these two men they both sin, but they both respond very differently to their sin. Two different kinds of fear, meaning to represent for us the two kinds of Adam. So I think a better translation for not just a man after God's own heart, but this would be David is a man of God's own choosing. I'm going to show you who my choice would be. And these representatives of these Adams, Israel's first king, Saul, represents the first Adam. Because what did the first Adam in the garden do? He rejected God's way, and instead of fearing and obeying God's voice, he said, I'll eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'll rely on my wisdom instead of God's. Just like Saul. I'm looking at the situation. 
I'm afraid of the situation. I'm going to do what I think is wise and good and not what God said. But the second, the second king, David, will represent, will represent the second, truer, good Adam, Jesus, who feared God and turns toward him in his way. This week, as I was reading this, this is interesting. We're talking about Saul being impatient. And I was reading through the Psalms, and the Psalm on it, I think it was Wednesday that I was reading, was Psalm chapter 40. It's a Psalm of David, this second king of God's own choosing. And I read these words, and it just hit me across the face as compared to what Saul, how Saul responded in this situation. Look at what he says. I waited patiently for the Lord to help me. And he turned to me, and he heard my cry. David waited patiently, unlike Saul. And what was, the re- what was the result? He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. Because if you wait patiently for me, it's going to go better. God is saying, trust my king, not the, cho- the choice of your choosing, not the ask of your asking. And the ultimate thing here, David represents King Jesus. And that's, he's the one that we put our hope in, not David. Never David, never another, never another person, right? We're not asking for a king. That Jesus is the one who waited patiently for God's timing, unlike the impatience and self-reliance of Saul. In chapter 13, it draws to a, um, a close here with a cliffhanger. The Philistines kind of puff out their chest. They've got Saul and Jonathan with only 600 men in a corner. And to make matters worse, it says they got rid of all of the iron workers amongst the Hebrews. So they don't even have the ability to make weapons. And this is where it lands them in verse 22. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people, because they got rid of them all. With Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. They're the only ones with weapons. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Ends on an ominous note. They got no men. They got no weapons. They got a lame duck king who's on his way out. This is not going to end well. Next time on King of Kings. So what do we do with this? What, what, what do we do with this? Well, with this text is a mirror for our souls. I want to hold it up. You know, you, know what, you know what happens when you look at a mirror? It exposes things that you don't want to see. There was a booger in my nose all day, and no one told me, right? True friends point out boogers, right? If you see something, say something. That's, that's, the, that's the takeaway. <laughs> that one's just for free. Um, as we look at this story, as we look at the story, we want to see, we want to see, <laughs> we want to see, that's right, we want to see the boogers in our own noses. That's what your pastor was trying to tell you. Allow these passages to expose the things in our hearts that need to change. And again, this, this, is, this is first descriptive, then prescriptive. So don't do weird things with this text, right? Don't just go, okay, Saul's burnt offering was rejected. So the next time I come to a potluck, if my casserole is burnt, then I guess I'll be rejected, right? I mean, don't, don't, don't do weird stuff with the text is what, what we're trying to say here. Okay, here here's, the, here's the first thing we always want to ask. What is this passage saying about our God? God is always the central character. So as we read scripture, we want to first say, what is God telling me about himself? What's he saying in this text? First of all, he's holy. Our God is holy and he must punish sin. He must punish sin. Our holy God cannot tolerate anything that is not like him, unholy, ungodly. He told Saul what to do. And he told Saul what would happen if he didn't obey him and fear him. He's a God who keeps his word. And this should draw us to our knees because, but by the grace of God, there go I. The only reason that I haven't been cut off from God 
It's because of the grace given to me through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how I'm made holy. Second thing we learn about God here is that he's sovereign. That our God is in control the whole time. He is in, he is in control. And he is powerful. And he will always be faithful to his promises. And if Saul would have waited, what would have happened? They robbed us of seeing God's glory in this passage. God would have wowed them with another crazy victory. Like when Gideon only had 300 men. And God wipes out an army that looked like sand on the seashore. Our God, our God is a God who doesn't need us. He can wipe out the enemy with a pinky. The God of the universe is here to fight our battles. But like with Saul, the question is, will we, what choice will we make? Will we wait on him or step out in our own way? Which is how we apply this to ourselves. In light of God's holiness, in light of his power, faithfulness to his promises and grace for me. What's this passage saying about me? Well, Saul let his fear, the fear of his circumstances, dictate his behavior instead of the fear of the Lord. It led him to impatience and self-reliance, which resulted in him losing his crown. So let's turn this, let's look at the mirror in our own souls and say, what, where are you tempted to let your circumstances outweigh the voice of God? Maybe you're in a scary place and you're walking by sight instead of listening to what God says about you and what he's called you into to be doing. I, this year, I've been, I've been saying that this is my, this is the, I'm in, a, I'm in the 4-H club this year. And not like ducks and goats. My, my 4-H's are this. I, I got a new hip in January. It's H number one. I got a new honey. You knew I'd get her on the back on the screen. Come on, come on. 27 days, praise the Lord. Uh, new house, new house. Uh, sold my house and I'm buying a new one. Uh, we'll be moving in uh, when we come back from the honeymoon. And then number four, a new hire. Uh, our candidate Ross coming up in August to apply. Lord willing, God will bring him in. So there's a lot of things going. These are all exciting things, uh, good things, uh, positive things. But what I've seen is how easily that I can, like Saul, I'm seeing the boogers of self-reliance and impatience in my own soul in these things. And what do I try to do? I try to take control. I want a house now. I want to do things my way, my timing. I don't even have patience running into the eighth part of road construction on the way to Anchorage. It's driving me crazy. And what do we try to do? We try to take control from our God, which is foolishness, Samuel said. We, t- we are not, when we take the remote control away from God, things do not go well. It's like when my, if I hand it off to my six-month-old niece, Maggie, she cannot operate that remote. She is so slow as a learner. It's crazy. She's smashing buttons. There's menus coming up that you didn't even know existed. She's trying to eat the remote. You're crazy, right? And when we try to take the remote from God, it does not go well. We make a mess of our lives. His way is better than our way. His timing is better than our timing. And the question is, will we wait on him? Will we trust him or we go our own way? The the fool does things their own way. The the one who is wise fears the Lord. But inevitably, I do never want to land the plane just telling you, be more patient. Trust God more. That's putting the onus on you. I don't trust you. I'm sorry. I don't trust myself. So here's, the, here's where we want to land the plane. Jesus Christ came because we inevitably won't trust God. Because we inevitably, on our own, will not be patient and rely on him. And so our Savior came and patiently relied on his Father for 33 years. Didn't do anything until he was told. Always relying on his power, not his own. Until at just the right time when God said, I want you to die for the human race. And, he, and he, on that cross, he forgave us and 
Through that empty tomb, he gave us the power and conquered our sin of impatience and self-reliance and distrust in our God. We look to our Savior. Father, we, we pray. We, we come. I, I want to confess my own impatience. I'm seeing in my own heart so visibly this, this last couple months. And Lord, we know that so often we hold up that mirror. We can resonate with Saul who would rush into things to try to make things happen in our way, our timing, instead of waiting on you. Lord, may we be people of the book that know your word, that read your word, and that as we know clearly what your heart is for us, how you would have us respond, when you would have to be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. These principles you so clearly laid out in your word that we would fear you, that we would trust you and obey you. And Lord, we inevitably don't, that we would fall on the cross of our Lord and receive forgiveness for our impatience and self-reliance. And in his new life, with that new spirit in us, that new heart of the man of your choosing, that through Jesus, we might be able to learn and, and, and grow, that we might be, as we abide in him, to be able to manifest the fruit of patience, which is the fruit of the spirit, not a fruit of the Justin. And that we might become a people who wait on you. And as we wait on you, we'll find victory. That we will find a way that is so much better than our ways. Father, it's so, so sweet to trust in Jesus. So we just simply pray for the grace to trust him more. In your patient, beautiful name we pray. Amen.